At the end of his life, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was weeping. His disciples came to him and said, O mighty hammer, why are you weeping? Why is your soul in distress? And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, I am about to meet Hashem, blessed be his name. And before me are two roads, one leading to paradise and the other leading to Gehenna. And I do not know which road he will sentence me. Today I'm excited to welcome returning guest David Barker. Our hope is to discuss the unique features of the book of Daniel, including the Jewish perspective. That's today on the Tove Podcast. You are listening to the Tove Podcast. So, David, uh, welcome back to the Tove Podcast. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you on uh, several weeks ago, and uh, when we interviewed you about your faith as a Jewish man who believes in the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, as you were able to see, that interview created uh, some great conversations uh, in the Tove Facebook community, which we always welcome. And, um, you know, you submitted to me here, uh, I have in front of me, your study on at least parts of the book of Daniel, which I'm excited about. And so I thought this would be a great idea to actually interview you about your studies on the book of Daniel. I think uh, there's a lot of enlightening things here that Tove podcast listeners would certainly benefit from hearing. And uh, so let's just dive right in. Uh, Who is Daniel? The name Daniel means God is my judge, and he was a person of deep abiding faith. There are only two people in the Tanakh uh, which no evil is spoken of, and these are Joseph and Daniel. As a youth, he purposed himself not to be defiled, and we see this in Daniel 1 verse 8. And when he was old, he persisted in serving God despite threats against his life, again in Daniel 6 verse 10. So God blessed Daniel because of his faith. Uh, He rose to great heights in the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia, and he served as a statesman, a counselor to kings, a prophet of God, and Daniel was a contemporary of other prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So regarding the whole book of Daniel, what are some of the unique features of the book? So unlike other books in the Tanakh, its unique features are Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 through 7 verse 28 is written in the Gentile language of Aramaic. Hmm. Um, Daniel Daniel 4 was written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And Daniel is also found in the Septuagint, or otherwise called the LXX. And this is important because the prophecies in Daniel are recorded three centuries before the events actually take place, Hmm. specifically with the timing of Messiah. Interesting, yeah. And I look forward to diving a little bit deeper into some of the prophecies found in Daniel So I would imagine that Daniel is considered a prophet all across the board. Is that right? Well, it depends on who you ask. In Christian Bibles, Daniel is grouped among the prophets. And this is because after the book of Ezekiel, which is following the order of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, done by Jewish scholars in Egypt around the 3rd century BCE. However, in the Jewish Bible, the book of Daniel is found in the Ketuvim, or the writings portion of the scriptures. Hmm. So, in your typical Christian Bible that contains the New Testament, Daniel's in the Prophets. 
But if you just have the Hebrew Bible, Daniel's in the writing. So why has Daniel been exiled from the prophets? Well, Jewish tradition holds that Daniel was never called a prophet, or in Hebrew, a navi. Nor are his visions called prophecy, and this is according to the Babylonian Talmud, Megillah 3a. So the rabbinic texts explicitly say that Daniel was not a prophet. However, the Babylonian Talmud also says in Sanhedrin 93b and 94a that Daniel was actually greater than the prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi because he saw the vision, which they did not. And we find this in Daniel chapter 10, verse 7. So if I read the Jewish Publication Society of the text itself for Daniel 9, verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to forgive iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place, end quote. So right there in Daniel chapter 9, we see the words vision and prophecy uh, or prophet. So in context, uh, the Navi seems to be, or the prophet seems to be Daniel himself. Correct. Uh, This is the second problem that we have. The rabbi's categorization of Daniel is that the criteria for exclusion is not universally applied. Many of the prophets in the prophet portion are never actually called prophets, either by themselves or even God. Hmm. In fact, there are nine prophets who are not named as a prophet or uh, a navi, which is the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew Bible. And they are Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Malachi, and Amos. Amos is very interesting to me because as he himself emphatically says in Amos 7.14, he says, quote, I am not a prophet, and I am not a prophet's disciple. Hmm. So yet the works of the nine not-named prophets are found in the prophet section called the Twelve or the Minor Prophets in the Jewish Bible. So why not Daniel? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It seems to me that Daniel should be included in the prophet section based on the general categorization that's used for prophets and based on the fact that uh, those exact words are used in Daniel 9, the words prophet and vision. So has Daniel always been excluded from the prophets in the Hebrew Bible? Interesting enough, prior to the Palestinian Talmud of about 400 CE and the Babylonian Talmud, which is about 100 years later, Daniel is called a prophet. Hmm. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically the 4Q174, it quotes Daniel 12.10 with the accompanying words, as written in the book of Daniel, the prophet. And this shows Daniel was regarded as scripture and may even have belonged to the prophets uh, in the Qumran community. Mm. We also see this from Josephus, the Jewish historian, who also calls Daniel a prophet, where he says Darius took Daniel the prophet and carried him into media, as well as the New Testament, where in Matthew it says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Mm. So if Jewish authorities uh, before and during the first century proclaimed Daniel to be a prophet, why would later rabbis or authorities remove him from the category of prophet? Well, I I think there may be two reasons. The first one is that Daniel's vision in chapter 7 verses 13 through 14 has a very interesting um, character. And I'll give you the text. It reads like this. As I looked on 
in the night vision, one like a human being, which in uh, Aramaic is Bar Enash, came with the clouds of heaven. He reached the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. Dominion, glory, and kingship were given to him. All peoples and nations of every language must serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship one that shall not be destroyed. Well, that is a fascinating passage, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So who is this human being type figure that the Ancient of Days, who is God Almighty, the Sovereign One, uh, who is this human being that he is giving authority to co-rule with him? This question is so profound that rabbinic literature, as early as the Mishnah, condemns this idea as teaching a scribe to the minim, which is a term often used of Yeshua's disciples. Mm. The idea of a co-ruler with the Ancient of Days clearly undermined the emerging Jewish Unitarian monotheism of that time. Uh, the Aramaic term, which I mentioned earlier, bar enash, is the equivalent of the Hebrew ben adam, meaning son of man. Interesting. So were there any rabbis who identified who this bar enash may be? There are a few. The one that, that I found uh, was Rashi, who was a medieval French rabbi and author of the comprehensive commentary on the Talmud and commentary of the Tanakh. In his commentary of Daniel nine, uh, sorry, Daniel 7.13, he says that this one like a man is the King Messiah. And again, this is from my research of the Talmudic text, and I'd be happy to engage with rabbis that may be listening to that podcast that can correct me mm. or show me uh, the context where I may have a different understanding. But I also want you to notice what the text says. It says that all people and nations of every language must serve him. And this Aramaic word here, pelach, which is pelamed chet, this definition of this word is to serve and worship, mm. and it's used in the Tanakh as a verb, and it means to reverence as deity. And this is the same word that's used of an action inappropriate towards idols, which we see earlier in Daniel 3 verse 12. But not so here. So the bar enash in Daniel 7 is one that receives worship. Mm. The great rabbi Akiva himself perceived two divine figures in this passage, and it caused quite a stir for Rabbi Yosef the Galilean, who goes on to rebuke Rabbi Akiva for such an idea. And we find this in the Babylonian Talmud, Hagiga 14a. Interesting. And for those who may not be familiar, when we mention Rashi, who, as David mentioned, was a medieval French rabbi, uh, Rashi is so influential when it comes to Judaism, both during his time and even leading up through today. And so when Rashi says and identifies this person in 713 as being one like a man as the King Messiah, um, that's pretty substantial, you know, for Rashi to say that, that this is referring to the Messiah. And the same is true for Rabbi Akiva, who has a lot of influence uh, among uh, rabbinic Judaism today. So I see the text says that this bar inash, uh, this figure, that God is giving authority to and that he is inviting worship of, quote, came with the clouds of heaven, end quote. Uh, that's used to describe this king. And so what does this imply? It implies a number of things. One is that the king, of Messiah, the king Messiah comes from heaven and is not from earth. And this vision clearly depicts the Messiah as a heavenly figure. Hmm. The second thing that we see coming with the clouds of heaven 
has specific significance in the Tanakh. It's always attributed to God and only God. And we see this as uh, an example in Psalm 104, 1 through 3. The term son of man is often misunderstood by Christendom as referring to the Messiah's humanity. But on the contrary, the son of man is not a term referencing his humanity or dual nature, but rather his full power and authority equivalent to that of the Ancient of Days. Mm. Uh, just a fascinating passage. Again, we're taking a look at Daniel uh, chapter 7 here. Um, David, if you could wrap up this specific verse in Daniel, what would you say are the key takeaways here? I would say that careful examination of this passage, Daniel leads to the following conclusions. First, that King Messiah is like a man. That is, he is in the form of man, but obviously so much more than just a man. We also see that King Messiah's origin is in heaven and comes to earth to establish an everlasting kingdom. And third, that King Messiah comes with the clouds of heaven, which implies deity. And all the peoples and the nations will offer divine service, pelach, and worship the King Messiah. Again, this implies deity. Interesting. So what Daniel 7 seems to be teaching here is that there would be this man figure that God has elevated to the point of co-ruling with him. I find that idea fascinating. We're going to talk a little bit more about this figure from Daniel chapter 7, uh, talk about some more characteristics, including the timing, because Daniel lays out in, in chapter 9 the timing for this figure to come. We're going to talk about that in just a second when we return from a break on the Tove Podcast. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Welcome back to the Tove Podcast. We are sitting down here with uh, David Barker, and we are talking about the wonderful book of Daniel. David, you'd mentioned earlier that the rabbis had removed Daniel from the category of prophet. Why do you think that's happened? Well, I think it's because Daniel predicts the time of Messiah, as given in Daniel 9. In the Targum of the Prophets in Tractate Megillah 3a, which was composed by Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel, we read the following, quote, And the voice from heaven came forth and exclaimed, Who is he that has revealed my secrets to mankind? He further sought to reveal by a Targum the inner meanings of the hagiographer, the portion of scripture which includes Daniel. But a voice from heaven went forth and said, Enough! What was the reason? because the date of Messiah was foretold in it. Hmm. Wow. So why is that a problem? Uh, why would the rabbis not want to know the timing of Messiah's coming? It seems to me like the Messiah is certainly the focal point of the Tanakh, that uh, the, the structure of the Tanakh points to this individual. So what would be the problem? Well, you would think that the rabbis are very interested in who the Messiah is, unless the Messiah turns out to be not the one that you had expected. Mm. The rabbis have placed, in fact, a curse on anybody that reads Daniel 9, uh, trying to calculate the timing of the coming of Messiah. Now, wait a second. 
There's a curse on anyone wanting to read Daniel 9 because it supposedly contains the timing of the Messiah. Do you have a reference to back that up? I do. In fact, it occurs in several places. One example is in Sanhedrin 97b of the Babylonian Talmud, which says, May those who calculate the end of days be cursed. The timing given by the prophet Daniel has become such a thorn in the side of, of the rabbis that Maimonides warned Jews of his own generation not to be concerned with prophecy or the timing of Messiah. He says this, One should not occupy himself with these and similar matters. Likewise, one should not try to calculate the appointed time for the coming of Mashiach. And we find this in the Hilchos Melachim from Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. After all, what would happen to the authority of the rabbis if an inquiring Jew were to confront their elders with the charge that they missed the coming of Mashiach? I personally believe that the generation of later rabbis had two choices. Either confess the great sin of the first century uh, of missing Mashiach or engage in cover-up of the biblical and historical evidence. Mm, Fascinating. Now, that's not too far um, from my particular position, right? I would also argue that we're not supposed to set a date for the coming of Messiah. Uh, So, for instance, I'm not going to say, if Messiah doesn't come by November of this year, then X, Y, Z. Some people do that. Right. Is that what the rabbis are trying to do here? The difference, I think, is that they're saying, don't study Daniel chapter 9, because it will lead you to the coming of the Messiah. Well, Daniel was very specific in his timing. He gave us timing as to exactly when the Messiah would appear. So we don't know the day or the hour, but for sure we knew the year. Hmm. The Messiah's appearance is fixed in time. Daniel's vision in 925 was that the the Messiah would come 483 years after the command to restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Hmm. Now, so you're saying that in 925, based on your interpretation we see that Messiah had to come by a certain time. Can you read 925 for us? Yes, it says this. You must know and understand from the issuance of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of the appointed or anointed leader is seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt, square and moat, but in the time of distress. So the clock of the, for the appearance of Messiah started when Artaxerxes issued a decree to Nehemiah to rebuild the temple and restore the holy city of Jerusalem. And we find this in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8. Mm, interesting. So yeah, it does seem there that Daniel 9.25 is saying, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So in other words, from the issuing of that decree, the clock should be started. That's right. Now, you're taking that decree from Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, But why that particular decree? Because there have been multiple decrees over the centuries uh, that refer to Jerusalem. Yes, there were. There were other decrees that went forth. However, this was a specific decree that involved both the temple and Jerusalem. We know historically that this took place on Nisan, which is around about March or April of 444 BCE. Mm -hmm. This means that the temple would be standing when Messiah came. Daniel says specifically after the appearance of Messiah, and this is quoting from the book of Daniel, and after the 62 weeks shall an anointed one, which is the Mashiach Nagid, be cut off and be no more. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Hmm. So we know that this occurred when Titus 
uh, and his Roman legions marched on Jerusalem in 70 CE, destroying both the city and the temple. So if the temple was destroyed, which it was, <laughs> my question then is, how are we to know who the Messiah was? Um, reason being, in a few episodes ago, in season three, episode 26, um, what we did was we, we took a look at a lot of different messianic passages, and one of them was Genesis 49.10. And in that particular passage, it says that the scepter or the, the authority would not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. The problem is that the genealogical records were kept in Jerusalem at the temple. So doesn't that present any kind of a problem? Well, it does. And this is another reason why Messiah had to come before the destruction of the temple. As any proof of lineage was eradicated when the temple was destroyed. And even the Sanhedrin of the time knew this. And they said when they were stripped of the authority and according to Josephus, that the members of the Sanhedrin covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and Messiah has not yet come. So while they were making this proclamation that the scepter was removed, the authority was removed, claiming that Messiah had not come, that was not a true reflection of what had happened because Messiah had come. Mm. They just did not recognize him. Mm. Which is actually in accordance with passages like Isaiah 53. Right. That uh, ultimately uh, this messianic figure, this servant would come, but he would not be the kind of Messiah that Israel would expect. Uh, so the Daniel prophecy says that after the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, the Messiah would be, quote, cut off, but not for himself. What does this mean? So it means to be killed or die a violent death. And this idea that the Messiah would die was not a new idea because the exact same phrase is used in the prophet Isaiah who wrote in chapter 53, verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living through the sin of my people who deserve the punishment. Mm. So according to some Qumran scholars, Jewish priests used the book of Daniel and the book of Jubilees um, to calculate the time window for Mashiach's arrival, which would be between 10 BCE and 2 CE. Wow, fascinating. So what you're positing here, just based on the few passages that we've referenced, Genesis 49, some passages in the book of Daniel, are you saying that the Messiah has already come? Well, I'm not saying it. This is what the Hebrew Bible and specifically the prophet Daniel and history has revealed. So much so that even the sages of the Talmud recognize this timing when they say it. Um, I'll quote here from Sanhedrin 97a. Rav said, All the predestined dates for redemption have passed, and the matter now depends only on repentance and good deeds. End quote. By the time the temple was destroyed, Daniel's predictions that the Messiah would come and die beforehand was fulfilled. And every Jew then, as now, has one of two choices, either to accept that Yeshua is the Messiah or begin to practice the new Judaism, which is one of repentance, prayer, and good deeds. And this is according to Yohanan ben Zachai. Now, you kind of threw something in there that we hadn't talked about until this portion of the podcast. Uh, you're saying that people have two choices to make, and one of them is accepting this figure of Yeshua as the Messiah. So I must ask, because we've not covered this yet, 
Does Yeshua fit Daniel's prophecy? Not only does Yeshua fit these credentials, but he himself makes this claim. When being tried by the high priest, this question was asked of him. The high priest stood up and came towards and questioned Yeshua, saying, Do you have an answer? What is it that you and these men are testifying against you? And Yeshua kept silent. And Yeshua then says, I am, and you shall see, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Mm. So Yeshua actually makes this claim as being the one who is the, the Barinash. From Daniel chapter 7. From Daniel chapter So he made this claim. And he was the one who also, as we know, even according to the Talmud, was, was uh, put to death. Yeah. So here you have a, a Jewish person, right? Yeshua, fully Jewish. Right. He's actually descended from David. I'm not yes. sure if all of our listeners know that. And he's claiming to be the son of man mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Not only is he claiming it, I find it fascinating that his circumstances matched up. External circumstances that would be completely out of any other man's control. So uh, we also mentioned a few weeks ago uh, on a podcast that he was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. No one determines where they were born, but that's exactly what Micah teaches, is that this divine child would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And then just some of the things you mentioned today, uh, David, about Daniel chapter 7 and the timing of the Messiah are so fascinating. Now, I've heard a story from the Talmud about um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, where he's at the end of his life. And I find it sad, but Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is weeping. He's weeping. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about that story with us. Yeah, so he's known as the Mighty Hammer, uh, very influential, obviously. And... um, his disciples came to him and said, why are you weeping? Mm. Why is your soul in distress? And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, I'm about to meet Hashem. God, blessed be his name. And before me, there are two roads, one leading to paradise, which is heaven, and the other leading to Gehenna, which we could consider hell. Mm-hmm. And I do not know to which road he has sentenced me. And here we see that the founder of rabbinic Judaism the one who's given this idea that the new Judaism of repentance, prayer, and good deeds, he himself admits that he has no assurance of where he's going to be. Mm. He doesn't himself not know how many good deeds, how much repentance, how much prayer is needed in order that God would not sentence him to Gena for what he did. And so at the end of his life, he was terrified to die. And today it's the same for all of us who choose to follow Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So you're saying that within rabbinic Judaism, there's not necessarily an assurance of salvation? Well, if the one who said that the way to salvation is through these three things and he himself was unsure Mm. of whether he had sufficiently done this, leads me to conclude that if he does not know, how would anybody else know? And this is why I'm saying, at least for, for me, that every Jew is one of two choices. Either we choose to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, which is one choice, or if we reject that, then we have to follow Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki, which is rabbinic Judaism. Mm. And the problem that we have there is that there's no assurance at all. Mm. Now, this is in contrast to another rabbi, um, rabbi that uh, a lot of Christians are familiar with because he's in the Brit Chadashah or the New Testament, and that's Rabbi Shaul or Saul of Tarsus. 
um, who was a strong adherent to Judaism. Um, and he continued to maintain a Jewish identity even after he believed in Yeshua, but he said something else at the end of his life, didn't he? Yes, he did. At the end of his life, he said this, And I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not to me only, but also to everyone who has longed for his appearance. And mm -hmm. we find this in the second Timothy chapter 4, 7 through 8. So Rav, Rav Shaul, Rabbi Shaul Paul, had the assurance and was certain of his salvation. And so does every person, every Jew that follows in the footsteps of uh, Rabbi Shaul and in the footsteps of Messiah, Yeshua. We have absolute certainty that those who live with him and die with him will one day walk with him. Mm. Well, you've given us a lot to think on here today, David. Uh, thank you for bringing your study uh, of Daniel to us, to the Tove podcast and our listeners. And again, just as David mentioned uh, in the middle of our podcast, we are absolutely open for any kind of correction or dialogue from any of the things uh, that David has presented to us here today. Uh, the Tove Facebook page uh, has been a wonderful place for folks to engage with both questions as well as share their own opinions. Um, and so we invite folks uh, to go ahead and um, check out the things that were mentioned in this podcast. And, you know, we'd specifically invite you to check out the scriptures because that's, that's the source of what we're saying here. Uh, check out Daniel for yourself. Check out the New Testament for yourself and really investigate to see if Yeshua is this Son of Man mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. It really is worth our time and effort and prayers to investigate such matters. Well, thanks for joining us today on the Tove Podcast. Uh, we're glad you found us, and we'd invite you to listen to previous episodes of the Tove Podcast. You can find those on iTunes, Spotify, at tovepodcast.com and a host of other venues. Thanks for joining us today. Shalom. <laughs>